Hi everyone, this is episode 0.1 of the Most Pottern Podcast. Um, today we're interviewing Minku, uh, who is one of our hosts. Um, Minku comes from from a really diverse background, actually. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think from different geographies and places, but also different disciplines. Um, I think he, he brings a, a, a fundamental understanding about design, but also how design is implemented into the world. So maybe Minku, you can just start off by introducing us about yourself. Where are you from? What brought you to the built environment, engaging with it, mm-hmm. and where are you where are you heading from there now? Um, yeah, sure. So my name is Min Koo Kang. Um, I'm originally from Seoul, South Korea. I got interested in the built environment by through an exhibition. Um, I visited. There was an exhibition at Sejong Muna Center at uh, at the center of the Seoul. There's this huge exhibition center. Um, they had the first um, exhibition of Gaudi and um, what fascinated me was um, his sketches and the fact that his sketches can turn into a building that was the first ex- uh, uh, kind of a major attraction point to me like someone sketches something and that suddenly turns into a physical physical thing so I naturally thought you know without doing any research or study architects do that kind of work. They just sketch things and magically something appears <laughs> and people just use it. So I thought that was amazing. Like, how cool is that? Um, but then, uh, so so I, I started um, studying. I, did, I didn't start studying architecture. I studied interior design. And then um, when, I, when I was about to graduate, um, I, I actually uh, switched. I went to Russia to um, attend this institute, and then that's where I, I met. Uh, I had an opportunity uh, to work at an architecture company in the Netherlands, and um, you know, one one things led to the other, and um, yeah, now I'm here. Like I, I started from the very uh, deep design, high design um, experience, and then you know, now I'm in development. Yeah, so, numbers. So no, yeah, exactly. So you, you went from OMA, Office for Metropolitan Architecture, which is, yes. you know, Pritzker Prize winning office led by Rem Koolhaas, yes. one of the legends of, of the field. And now you're working in des- development. So yeah. what happened? What led you to move from, you know, <laughs> diagram to, to, to finance? Yeah, so again, it goes, it, it starts from what, what I was interested in. I, I was interested in turning a sketch to a building. And just being an architect, um, a, a very few architects out there um, has the ability to do that. That like the projects come to them, developers come to them asking for their vision. Um, but if you're not one of the established ones, it's very difficult to start your own. And even when you're working with established architects like Ramkulas and the Office for Metropolitan Architecture, you kind of see the limitations in what or disappointed about the situations that you 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 put in you you, you get to put into. Um, so I, I was doing a lot of schematic design, competition design phases. Um, I think I worked on about 30, 35 projects through a span of five years. Um, I worked in Rotterdam, I worked in Qatar, I worked in Hong Kong, and I worked in New York office. So all the all different offices, and I've 
I was um, you know, experienced um, working with different partners. The frustration there was really um, the fact that the architects, or at least my role, didn't have any um, first direct communication channel to the decision makers. And even if you had that for some, uh, for, for some miracle, um, they didn't seem to quite get or care of what you have produced or what idea that you have. Um, and they just easily wipe those work out um, and just, you know, get deposed in trash or get archived in their storage and live as a drawing somewhere. So you're probably, talking about the developers. Yeah, for developers or um, not, not just the developers, but um, other people who are more closer on the ownership side mm -hmm. who can make those decisions. Um, but then, you know, I, I just felt the limitation. Mm -hmm. um, the often co the the freaking comments that I got was you know your ideas are great but we don't we don't we don't have the confidence to build it or it sounds too expensive mm -hmm. or um, and yeah it, those co comments are valid because I never we never or at least a team that I worked at OMA never thought of how much this will um, cost because it, it wasn't it wasn't part of the thinking process at all um, so. You know, after doing like 30 something projects, just working your, just dedicating the, your entire life. It's a very intense place. <laughs> to, sure. the, yeah. to, the, to the work, you just work like, you know, in average, I, I think by default, like 12 hours a day. That was like for me for a very long time. And then, you know, depending on when you're closer to the deadline, that time goes to like 20 hours mm -hmm. or very easily. I mean, maybe while we're on this, I, yeah. if I could take a sidebar, yeah. I think you have like a very international experience, which is quite interesting. Mm -hmm. um, I guess, what do you think are some of the similarities or differences that you've seen working across all of these different places and different cultures? Oh, that's a loaded question. I, I wish I had a simple. I wish I had a simple answer. Um, but I think geographically, uh, the work that I was doing, and I think that's also what, what, what makes it possible for these design architects to practice globally, is because they get pulled into projects as the first um, visionaries mm -hmm. to imagine what that project would do, imagine what that project um, can be like in terms of mm -hmm. shape, in terms of the facade material, in terms of the usage. Um, and because that is universal language, like the quality of things, the experience of a space, that's quite universal. So um, people try to invite these uh, big name companies and architects to think about their projects and propose some sort of vision mm -hmm. that they want to take and then build it. Um, but it's because of that, it's also very limited and it's, it's often difficult for a design architect to um, be as detailed as you want. So you have a you don't know what the local zoning code is, what the local building process is, what the local building code, what what type of building code they follow. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes design architects work, work with local architects. Local architects work with local consultants and but the design architects wants want to think that they have all the power and control of defining, you know, what needs to go where. Mm -hmm. But in reality that doesn't really happen. So I think it's a very complex question because um, people come from, people think that they are the decision makers in some aspect, but they really aren't. And um, I, I just saw a lot of inefficiencies happening in that process. And yeah, I, I think that, that would be, I don't know if I answered your question. 
Um, but that was the common um, experience I had working in, in different continents. Mm -hmm. um, but again, because you are on the design architect side and you, your language is more universal, that enabled me to work on different continents, which was uh, a very um, interesting experience. You can get to experience different cultures, different um, types of living. Um, so you broaden your perspective on how the city or the society actually operates. So I guess that will be one of the gains I got. Sure. Thank you. Yeah, it's a, it's a super interesting perspective, I think, um, especially, I think, for you having worked at, you know, probably, you know, the, the highest point of high design in architecture, um, your kind of perspective about how that's deployed um, across the world mm. um, is really fascinating. Um, but I also wanted to, you know, I really deeply believed in those ideas mm. and it was heartbreaking every time that they get shot down and just get delayed without knowing what's happening behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the ultimate driver of me coming here to Boston and going to MIT and try to study, you know, what the numbers are. Like, does it really, does, does it really um, break the project? Does my, did my design or did my work really break the project? Mm -hmm. But I see, you know, but I, I think actually not. I mean, depending on the developer, people can make your work sometimes. Yeah, let's let's dig into that a little okay. bit. I guess like when you were on the design side, like what kind of drove that initial frustration that really uh, kind of made you seek something else out? And now that you're on the other side, having you know been in real estate and development, like how do you see that original frustration differently? How do I see that original frustration differently? Um, I, I guess I'll I'll start by talking about the frustration I had, which was one lack of sleep. You know, your health <laughs> gets broken. I mean, I basically. Um, worked the entire half of my 20s at OMA and I basically got burned out and that's why I, I, I had to move out because I just couldn't continue to do what I was doing for the past five years there. Um, but it didn't seem like the practice will be changing um, at any time because it was the practice that I experienced was um, there's a leader or partner who leads the project and depending on the style of the partner, Either they try to work together with the team and try to build build some consensus and give a direction and try to build everything together as as a true leader. And but um, when working with some other partners, it was something that's different. It was more like it looked like giving more liberty to the team and making them produce you know many options. And then the partner just comes in and chooses as if that partner is the client, mm -hmm. which didn't make sense to me. Because if you're a decision maker, I think you have to be more responsible in not only the big picture decisions, but like in the day-to-day -day decisions and guide the team where mm -hmm. they want to go in order to make efficient use of their time. Right. But it was more like you figure it out, come with outcome, and I'll just choose. So that was actually the ultimate kind of you know um, wake-up call for me, thinking that I cannot do this anymore. I don't, you know... I'm like giving it all to, for maybe a, a, what I thought was a higher purpose um, mm -hmm. in design and in life, but um, it, it wasn't like that. I was sacrificing a lot, but I didn't feel like I'm getting back what I'm you know, putting in. Mm -hmm. So naturally, and physically I couldn't do it anymore. So naturally I you know, went, saw, saw what's out there, was cu got curious in, in learning what's out there 
and what are the skills that I need to teach myself to um, transition to maybe a better role that I can do continue to do the things that I like about design, but in a more effective way. Yeah, so you ended up at MIT studying the Masters of Real Estate uh, yes. development program. So why MIT, why real estate development? Why not, say, the planning side or mm -hmm. construction? Um, so I was fortunate enough to experience at OMA um, larger scale projects. So I, I, I would say a, vari a various scale of projects from uh, uh, just a research book publication to maybe a, uh, to a single family home, but for like queens and princes and princesses, to uh, museums, uh, residential buildings, hotels, and to like city plan, city design, urban design. Um, that was very fortunate. Um, so I didn't have a drive in um, learning something more of a bigger scale of things. I had a drive to, again, realizing the idea. And I thought if I want, and I thought I, I was convinced that, you know, by interacting with a few developers, a few clients, especially in the New York, in the New York office here, they seem to be the ones who are making the decisions, whether it was better or worse for their project, I don't know, but they seem to be the ones who has the um, ability to decide what goes where and why. That naturally led me to think about, okay, within the work spectrum that's involved in the practice of architecture, I thought I was at a choice, at a moment to make a choice of whether you wanna go on the higher level, not not in terms of like hierarchy or you know getting paid more, but in terms of the higher level, meaning you know the decision the more on the decision making yeah. side, um, or you can be very specific and be an expert in what mm -hmm. you deliver, like detailing, or like work, be an expert of like hospitality or expert of like hospital design, because right, right. those type of practices are out there and they get paid very well because they are the experts, they right. know everything about them. Okay. So I. Because I don't, I didn't have a, a background in architecture education. I thought that was always my weak side. To I, I was interested, but um, I thought it, it's probably in the, at that stage of my life, it's probably not something that I can dedicate, you know, my remaining time to learning detail. Um, and it, it, I thought it, it had more relevance because at OMA in specific, um, when they design a project. They think about the context and they try to rationalize with the decisions, the design moves, and try to be more impactful in what they deliver as an out outcome. Mm -hmm. So, and I think that is mm, similar to what developers want to do. Like they want to make the best out of their opportunity, which is the land that they have. So they want to understand the location, the context, um, what type of you know program it's it's the best use of of their land. Um, uh, I think previously it was more mostly on the financial aspect that they were concentrating, but I, I think that's also diversifying. Um, and there are different type of developers out there. So, but it's not as established or um, archived. So I, I felt the developer world is more like a wild, wild west where there are cowboys and they can be entrepreneurial. <laughs> And you can do whatever you want if you have the resources. So uh -huh. that that led me 
to thinking, okay, maybe I can be one of those guys. Because <laughs> Omi is known for doing a lot of research for yeah, projects, right? Yeah. Like you have to build a story around the project. And mm -hmm. you're saying that you saw that development was doing a similar thing. Maybe yeah. not looking at the same exact um, sets of information. Maybe it's less narrative and more kind of financially driven or mm -hmm. more data driven, but that you could translate some of those skills that you'd have cultivated while working at OMA and then bring it into a developer mindset in this kind of wild west. Yeah, thinking. yeah, that's what I thought because OMA for me, they even at the uh, um, at their Venice Biennale, right? They um, they did a um, made a huge dive in doing research in all different aspects related to a building, like doors, windows, stairs, roofs. Mm -hmm. um, each of those aspects, elements had a book, and it, you know the the Biennale was called Elements of Architecture. Mm -hmm. One thing that was missing was money, <laughs> right. so I thought, okay, like. I see, you know, Ram Kula says, you know, my one of my mentors, like it, 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 he helped me. I mean, not helped me directly, like by teaching me, but like help. He helped me while working with him um, by looking at how the things that he um, valued the most in design. I was fortunate in observing that design uh, decision making process, and I was fortunate to talk to him and he was always very open if you were asking the right question like what why he thinks this is the way and what he you know believes in so just adding the i thought it was easy to just okay like every, every elements have been detailed and researched and it's public knowledge like maybe i should add like that money money element to it and then maybe i can just try to use all this established elements um, and knowledge out there to for my you know for my own growth right. for the first time and try to think of it and make sense of it in the things that I'm surrounded by because right. one of the things that I again also what I was also um, discouraged was because you were designing for the kings and queens and for the uber luxury you know housing Perhaps, yeah, yeah mm -hmm. for the um, you know, super high net worth individuals, all those projects were for them. But, and then you're imagining and visioning this like very glossy, amazing architecture. But when you come home, you're in your studio or your one bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> I was at that time living in Queens at a, uh, I don't know, post-war brick building mm -hmm. where insulation was very poor. So there's like cold air leaking with my box of pizza every night. You know, so your after the late your reality and the reality you're creating for other people just wasn't really. Alive, yeah, it was it, it, it was. Um, yeah, it, it, it was broken. Like there was no continuity mm -hmm. in terms of what I was doing in work and what, what the reality that I was facing. Okay. So um, I tried to, but you know, it's it's still an, a very attractive field, the, the field of design, because it's very creative and everything is possible. Um, and, you know, I dived in and, and dedicated my, my, you know, half of my 20s and even up till now, I think, you know, just to understanding what was what happened in terms of history, what type of discussions and dialogues were out there, you know, what's the the, the different type of pedagogies of different schools. Um, but I saw an opportunity to digest that and try to implement it in the real world. Um, and I think studying about money and the, how money flows was the key of bringing those ideas into reality. Right, right. So you, you wind up at MIT. Yes. And what was that like? 
MIT <laughs> was great. Like all the freedom that you wanted, you can do whatever you wanted. Um, at first, I was uh, intimidated because MIT Center for Real Estate um, is under the architecture school, um, and it, I, it provided me the the exact experience that I wanted, which is to get exposed to different disciplines. Like that program. Uh, and the students that came to that program had such a wide variety of backgrounds. Mm -hmm. So there were actually developers, uh, uh, actual developer uh, who came in, uh, who is trying to you know, take his father's job. They had a generational development family mm -hmm. um, who wanted to learn more and also maybe add, you know, get the credential boost from MIT and then return back to their practice and right. try to be a manager or... Which, which seems to be pretty common in development and real estate. Like, yeah, it's often a family, it's a family business. Office, family business. Um, and there were attorneys in, engaged in zoning or permitting that they know all the law, but they're, they're, they, they were ambitious enough to try to do it themselves. So mm -hmm. there, were, there were attorneys involved. There were, of course, financiers, investors who wants to come in and try to, you know, use as this channel to go to a larger firm, you know, better benefits. And then also there were frustrated architects. I think there was a, I think from my year, there was a trend. It was a trend um, of, of frustrated architects coming into development, try to try to transition <laughs> to, to investment because, you know, People just think that oh Wall Street or if you're in investment you're in the big you're in for the big bucks, mm -hmm. um, without knowing what they're actually dealing with. So I think that dragged an attention. Um, so there was this diversity, and because of that, you can meet different type of people either. But there are people who are devoted in like trying to make the best out of this program by getting a pay raise or getting to a new job, like getting their salary boost. Um, but there were also people who were interested in architecture, interested in design, but coming from different fields, coming from you know law or um, like even brokerage. Um, so I got, I became friends with them, like who were interested in what I've been doing, and I was interested in what they were doing, and naturally that you know created some sort of a bond. And there were people who who are graduates of that program who are active in. Boston or in different areas as a developer, mm -hmm. you get to, you get connected to them and try to and because you know they're friends of a friends, they have a similar type of interest. They're interested in the ability of design, like the creativity. What because there's this kind of mutual understanding that we don't know yet what it is because it, it's not statistic statistics. It's not in numbers yet. You're saying design. Yeah, design. Yeah. But there is something in design. That is special. That makes some. That can make something special. And and my, and my interest naturally was in there um, from the start. And MIT was an opportunity for me to actually grow that interest. And so that's what I've done in my thesis. And that's what I'm trying to continue to do. Basically, question the um, intersection of design and development finance, right. and trying to understand how they can work together better because it's undefined yet. I think maybe this is a good time to go into that thesis and yeah. that research and the book that you're working on. Can oh. you tell us a little bit more about, uh, I guess, your exploration at this specific intersection that you're interested in? Before you answer, I, th I think it's it's this is really important because it's something that everybody wonders is, what yeah. is the value of this? <laughs> <laughs> like, how do we quantify that? Yeah. Um, so 
I was very fortunate when I started that uh, program, there was this uh, uh, very young lab that was eager to expand their research scope called the MIT Real Estate Innovation Lab. Um, it was led by the director who sadly passed uh, late uh, mid this year. Um, she was she was a brilliant uh, postdoctorate called uh, her name was and Andrea Shigu. Um, she gave me we taught we just you know had a conversation and the thing that the lab had was this extensive data set that combined all the real estate transaction data and also the rental data in the residential and commercial side, tracking that from year 2000 to 2020 and onward. Um, and <clears throat> also not just having that uh, data as a spreadsheet, but linking that to a 3D model. So geotag the data set to an actual uh, location and ex actual uh, massing of that building so that you can understand and analyze um, whatever you want to do. So the methodology that they were using was something called, um, uh, what's, what's the actual name? Mm. Hedonic, uh, hedonic analysis. So you go, you run a regression model um, with the existing data set by adding your data of interest. So for, for my case, um, I wanted to basically make sense of what I've been doing in the past. So does um, famous architects or award-winning architecture company, uh, when they design a project, does that trade differently or does that trade with a premium compared to similar office or similar purpose building and similar scale within maybe like a quarter mile radius? Do, do they trade with a higher value? Um, so essentially, does does architecture, can you have a brand that has a value? Yeah. So the, the well, if we, if, we go, if we go to the outcome of that study, yes, it, it, it did show about 23% of premium. But why it showed that can be um, discussed in different levels. Um, and in, because the data itself doesn't give you that much of a detail of understanding why that is. Some, there, there were studies in the, I think the 60s um, that started this type of um, regression study on, on uh, awarded design. And they were also reporting similar range of premiums, like 18%, like 20%. Um, but w why that premium is there, can, uh, the, the popular reasoning was, like you said, the marketing power or the brand of the mm -hmm. name. But you know, not all the, all the architects um, worked on those design at their prime. Like they became the office that they became through that project right. sometimes. So I would question that that um, analysis, saying like because it's the brand name, but the brand name wasn't there when they built it. Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe it it influences a recent transactions with a premium after mm -hmm. they built that name, but um, it can be you know looked at differently. The other other reason was that. If you if the projects are the, uh, actually the projects that the the famous architects are working on, and the projects that has the budget to bring in these famous mm -hmm. architects, are like the prime location uh, prime location that 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 is already set to earn top dollar right. in the market. So, for right. instance, like in New York, like Midtown Towers, mm -hmm. or if it's in Wall Street, or you know. More of a correlation or, or, effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that I think is is that can be more believable, um, but not again. Not all the 
buildings are in that prime location. Right. So that cannot explain the entire reason. So what we've done at the lab, and it's related to the book publication that, that I'm working on, which will be out next fall <laughs> in 2024. Uh, um, everyone, make sure yeah, uh, yeah. to mark that on your calendars. It's a Value of Design uh, book from MIT, published by Oro, um, designed by Studio Lin. So we're, we're in the design process now. Um, um, where was I? So in order for us to understand and break it down, the reasoning behind it, um, there were, I was fortunate to have a few more researchers from MIT who are interested in this project, who are also kind of frustrated architects. <laughs> um, so uh, Helena Rong, um, she was a uh, DUSP student. She actually also worked at OMA in Rotterdam. She was an in she interned there for a while, and I think she was also a junior architect in, in Hong Kong or other offices. Um, she came in and then um, Tony Cheng, Tony Jin Cheng, um, he, he also came in as a DUSP and he, they're both doing their PhD, uh, Tony's in Harvard and um, Helena's at Columbia. Um, they were interested in continuing and taking, uh, detailing this research by breaking down, Helena actually started by breaking down the design features. So we thought, okay, like there's this argument about the, the, the public publication, or not, argument about the marketing power that this architect said. There's this argument about um, the location or the, the initial setting of that development being prestigious from the start. But as, as architects, as designers, we thought there's something in the actual design that, that establishes this, this building. So she started to break down different features such as, you know, is it the curved shape of this building? It, is it the fact that because we were um, solely concentrating in Manhattan as our um, study base, uh, we thought, okay, maybe is it because of the views or is it because of the actual greenery that you have around or with, within the building? The context. Yeah, the context. Mm -hmm. Or is it the daylight effect that if you have more light coming in, that's valued differently? Is it the actual podium plus, plus tower typology or is it just like straight, you know, extruded building? Mm -hmm. Is it like different cutting corners? Is it the actual material of the building that, that, that trades differently? Um, so she broke down, I think, 13 or 15 features and then did, ran a study and um, she identified a few, a few design features being distinctively um, adding value to the design, to the actual uh, trade value of the, of the building. Well, I'm sure everyone but, wants to know which ones Yeah, I, 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 I won't disclose that here. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. But if you're interested, you should get the book and, or ask Helena, she's a great researcher. Um, uh, but yeah, it, it, it's an interesting endeavor and uh, through that experience, I um, actually did some more research adding because I wanted to make sense of the profession as well, what developers do, because there's just a huge variety of, of developers out there as well. Like there are, like similar to architecture and development, there are um, larger like Heinz, like Lendlease, huge properties, huge so corporations, publicly that, traded, yeah, publicly so traded or huge REITs um, like Fornado mm -hmm. um, that owns like multi-million square feet buildings around all around the US and globally like Heinz have, has their Europe, Europe office like operated in London. 
um, and Lendlease is it's an Australian firm, um, and they were they were known to collaborate with this even before the study in you know early on. Heinz did this. Um, they were using architects as a way to add premium to their buildings even before the studies or before mm -hmm. our study. I mean, no one, no one they had, um, but they, they knew that there was something there too. So um, it, it was it was quite natural um, to get interested in that area. Uh, but again, going back to the development, um, there's a wide range. So there are those type of uh, very large uh, multinational corp corporations. And then there are mom and pops that probably you know owns like a three-story residential building probably inherited from their parents like an mm -hmm. office building like six stories office building somewhere um, or probably you know someone who has either those like zoning or has a law background or investment background who is owning real estate as an investment tool um, but and then there were at that time when I was at school I, I thought I thought there was this um, uh, rebranding of what was initially what has initially started as an architect and developer model mm -hmm. so like in the 60s um when john portman is, is that the right name portman yeah, yeah. john portman famous, uh, yeah famous Carolina, Ar yeah built a bunch of hotels yeah yeah he started huge atriums, yeah right? yeah huge atriums so design wise he was also he's very well referenced when people are designing atriums um so i think that only was possible because he was the developer. Mm -hmm. um, he started building shopping malls, and then that was a huge success. And he used that um, assets and equity to to explore like large scale hotels. And then there was Peter Gluck's office, Gluck Plus, who was more uh, tackling the similar frustration mm -hmm. um, from the more of a builder's angle, where he actually he his first project was um, building his home by him and his wife. I don't. I forgot the location, but it was somewhere around the beach. He built it by his, his own two hands, and then that created, that set the foundation of his firm. Mm -hmm. So their firm does practically everything, like from construction, design, to development, too. Um, and, and when I was at school, coming back to like 2018, um, there were a few firms popping up, uh, utilizing, you know, design and, you know, uh, different ways of um, positioning their their project, different ways of shaping their projects as one of their key differentiators, um, competing with different developers. So there was like firms like Alloy, DDG, um, that was doing great. They they built their like first second first second third um, projects in in Manhattan. Um, but when when they when you look at their business model, they're they were using design to add premium to their buildings so for if, if it was housing if it's designed differently they just boosted the, the the cost so that was like and then that's when also when the all the pencil towers were going up mm -hmm. like uber luxury you know residential towers so the at that time design was used to um just boost the sales of of these units um just adding at at, at, at a adding a profit model and you know, Alex, you you told me. I don't know if if this can be disclosed here, but like, the when you were um, working on a high rise in San Francisco, the design fee was basically less than or equal to one of the unit yeah. prices. 
that was that's what I spent a bit off from my side of the story. Yeah. <laughs> so we can we can dive a bit more on that. Um, but I was a bit, um, I was welcoming that, but in a in also in a way kind of a bit confused and um, because you know. It, they were just using design as a tool to mark up their prices. You thought that the you designer developer could do more? Like, yes, okay. I thought the designer developer can do more. Not just like making it fancier and making it more glossier. You're saying and charge more. they were doing what developers were already doing. Exactly. Okay. They were doing what developers were already doing, but just cutting, cutting the, you know, cutting the middleman. So because they are architects, they have the eye to look at what's good, mm -hmm. what's good design. And they can also hire architects and work work directly with them. It, it just felt like they were, you know, just they weren't really, you know, fully exploring the potential of what design can do. Um, so that made me think, you know, okay, can there be different ways of um, engaging with design, but not just jacking up the prices or making it luxury, but you know, can we rethink? how we build and deliver projects that can be more meaningful or more engaging or more you know doing better doing better stuff um yeah because i think the designer developer model is very attractive for a lot of people it makes sense right like yeah. if i can hire myself i don't have to deal with a client i yeah. can be my own client yeah but then you also encounter sort of these issues that you're bringing up also the cultural side like john portman was basically Ex, he was he was excommunicated from the AIA for doing yeah. development. You know, like within design culture, it's not right. something that is perceived as valuable. Yeah. But it seems like you're trying to also change that a little bit. You're trying to find new ways that design can really be forefronted or centered within the development process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's my belief and hope, um, and that's my guiding principle in deciding. You know what I want to do next. Um, Every architect will probably want to want all the projects that they engage in to be special in some way, one way or the other, because the the profession itself is just very demanding. It's it's very difficult, and you know it requires a lot of dedication of your time, sometimes sacrifice, um, you know, over family or. Um, so. But it's a powerful. Tool. It can do many things, not just making a pretty picture. I mean, you, you can. There are different ways of um, approaching it. I, I don't know the full answer to this, but um, I'm exploring the possibilities. Let's mm -hmm. say. And so you're. I think you're engaged with a few projects right now. What, what are you right. working on these days? Right. So um, I am working on. I have two ongoing uh, development projects. One is in Roxbury, Boston. I started working with the property owner in 26, 20, no, 2019, 2020. Um, actually, yeah, 2020. Uh, the owner is a long-term resident of that community. They lived there for 30-something years. They raised their family. Um, they own this parcel of land that's, uh, that's located in a very good that's located in a very good and strategic location where it's surrounded by very tall buildings, institutional buildings, but they're at the very tip of the, of where the uh, residential town starts. Mm -hmm. um, so they wanted, they saw that as an opportunity and wanted to grow wealth within the community and just do something that's good in terms of architecture, in terms of um, affordability, 
and also try to generate revenue and give back to the community to make it make everyone's life a bit better. So we started with a good intention and a good alignment of intention and goals. Um, we developed the scheme together with the, with the family. Um, it, the, the existing building there was a three-story single-family home with a ground floor retail space. Um, that retail space was beloved by the by the people. It's because uh, um, uh, right in front of the right in front of the property, there's a mosque, and that cafe served the mosque quite, uh, uh, and it was very active when the mosque was um, doing their. Uh, what 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 do you what do you call their do, during prayers during their p- prayers yeah. um, so what we pro- what the project that we produce we proposed to the city and the community and what we finally got approved uh, this year was a seven story forty unit building I know for some that that sounded massive and maybe for some it sounded like tiny but for that lo- for that neighborhood we have experienced great amount of pushback from the neighborhood group because they didn't they you know didn't think or they ignored the context that was surrounding that site they just thought that this lot was within their larger single family home community um, and they I guess they just didn't want to see things happen, or maybe they had bad experiences with developers before. Um, they publicly made statements saying that this is like a monstrosity going up seven stories too much, like too dense. But on the city side, you know, they need we Boston is in dire need of additional more housing because the uh, housings are getting more and more. Affordable, the rents are climbing up very high. Very, it's at the similar level with New York now, um, and we needed more housing to at least start to deal with um, that those issues. Mm-hmm. So, what we proposed in the first place was a, we're going to do passive house. So, energy wise, this is going to be you know no brainer. We're committed to doing passive house. Um, we are going to also extend the sidewalks and add more trees so that the experience of the community members passing by the building um, will be improved. Um, we're going to keep the cafe, um, make it better, give it more of an open plan um, to activate the streets, keep activating the streets, keep having the mosque users to come in. And we were also questioning about the affordability aspect and we adopted the what was then the pilot program called compact living so in in standard you know in in other terms it can be seen as a co-living model where you provide smaller um, unit sizes so our studio units are like 340 square feet um, but you also complement supplement that as with other um, amenities like uh, co-working spaces, more shared spaces, a gym, a roof deck, more outdoor space. And plus, we um, I wanted to implement this robotic furniture that came out of MIT Media Lab called Ori Living. Um, that it made sense to me to if you if you have just a single room and you, if you have the ability to. Um, move your furniture like the Ori Living. Basically, there's there are you know a variety of, of, of products that they offer. But what what I was interested in is is the cloud bed model where it's a bed and it's also a sofa. The bed disappears to the to the ceiling when you're not using it, and then you it turns into a sofa. 
So the living space can be also a sleeping space, so you can have more kind of flexibility in the use of the space. Um, so that that you know that's one of the projects that I'm working on. We we finally after like two and a half years, almost three years of community engagement and the zoning process with the city, we finally got the zoning approval this July in 2023. Um, but then, while we were getting the approval processes for, for zoning, a new architecture conservation district got established in that area. I'm a lover of history and I have, I appreciate historic architecture. However, <laughs> I feel that um, this uh, architecture conservation, the idea is great. I mean, they want to protect the heritage of the buildings. Um, but the issue is the people who were opposing the community community members who were opposing this project there were the same people behind the architecture conservation district who lobbied and who kind of uh formed that entity were the same people you're saying they're instrumentalizing I, that's how i feel because yeah exactly because because the city didn't hear them or didn't didn't act as acted the way that they wanted to be like rejecting these projects um well it's the typical nimby situation right i think at least in america a lot of people are used to now especially you know developers and i think listening to your story also from my own experience a lot of times we don't think about all these battles that the developer has to fight when right. we're just doing the architecture right our our battle is just with the building itself and right. the work. <laughs> but the developer and and usually we have a look at least some control over that like it's yeah. a mm -hmm. it's a confined situation versus right. the developer situation anyone can come off off the yeah. street and say i don't like it the way this looks yeah. it's too new it's yeah. too big it's too whatever yeah right? you, you can't make everyone happy unfortunately and you have to pick your battle mm -hmm. um so we're uh, that project is now at a stage that we, we um, because of that we the project is needing another approval to get uh, to get to the building permit stage where the actual architecture and engineering work starts and i think this is a great example showing the disparity be between what architects understand as a building process and what developers sees as a building process Ar as an architect i always question why why is this project not starting it's been a year it's been two years like what is it what's going on because i in my head it was just easy like we can design it very quickly we can just build it within one year and it'll be done but um, just knowing that there's so many hurdles and so many different people that you have to talk to, like I think I had within the span of three years, I had like 40 meetings <laughs> talking about the same thing over and over again. Mm -hmm. um, and there, there's a limit of what we can give because you know the owners are, they took a loan to finance the project to this point. And every time, every single moment that the owners engage a professional, that's like just money going out of a, out of their pocket. So they've been very courageous and you know faithful uh, to me and to the team to give us the opportunity to advocate for the building and you know just make progress bits and bits every day. And this year we got the zoning permit, but then there's another hurdle of the architecture conservation district and after that the actual architectural work starts and after that the construction starts so, so i mean construction already is is pretty unpredictable but yeah. it seems like the development process even even more so you just yeah. don't know what what's going to happen next there's a there's a, a a good graph reference that um i use quite often um and it, it's produced by professor david keltner um at mit center for real estate 
So in his graph, he describes the building process having the, the largest risk in the, in the zoning side, in the permitting side, because mm -hmm. that's when so many individuals and disciplines are involved and you don't, you, you don't have any control over it. Like when actually construction starts, the risk gets significantly low because you're only dealing with the building and you're right. only dealing with the contractor, at least from the developer's side. Because mm -hmm. like by then everything's sorted out. Barring a natural disaster, act of God. Yeah, if, if there is no act of God or like a natural disaster, it's supposed to be efficient and it's supposed to be, you know, predictable, controllable. Yeah. controllable. But before getting to that, it's like the risk is this high. From the from the graph, and then the risk of construction comes down to like even even less than one third of it from that graph. So, well, it seems in general too, you know, people I've encountered, we've all encountered, the built environment represents a certain situation for people, and I think uh, when we try to change it, sometimes people react defensively right. simply because they're averse to change. Right. And um, I think we do experience that as architects, but it seems like from the development side, that's your constant struggle. Right. So maybe just a broader question is, how do we balance <laughs> the need for change and newness versus you know, also preserving some of the things that we, we do value and things that do work? Again, I don't have a straight answer to that. Um, I, can, I can say, I mean, we can come back to this because um, I think it's a multi-layered question. Um, but one thing, that I've learned was at school, when you're trained as a designer or an architect, um, there are these canons of design, right? You, there are these heroes of design that actually um, is talked about quite frequently, either like Le Corbusier or Khan or Rancoulas or like these design idols. And the designers are trained to either follow their trajectory or follow their thinking. Or at least that as a start, and then you know try to find something unique that that they can speak to, like, that they can kind of coin or have um, uh, have ownership in creating. Um, but if once you bring that design to the community members who are non-designers who doesn't know what what they like or dislike, they they for them it's all the same. If it's not traditional architecture, it's all modern. And modern is evil. <laughs> if it has a flat roof, flat facade, uh, square windows, and it's a box, it's a box. They don't see it differently. So the biggest challenge that I'm experiencing in this Elma project is is actually part of that. Like it's it is a box, but it's different. I mean, for me, it's a beautiful box. <laughs> it has some shifting moves, and the window patterns are different. But for the other people with an untrained eye, that's just a box. Um, and you know, again, whatever box shape, whatever contemporary architecture, whatever developer project is evil. Um, so f from the developer's perspective, you have to deal with the stigma of, uh, of an evil developer, like extracting developer. And people, that stigma is very strong, it's, it's stronger than what you can imagine. And maybe architects have a different stigma, like they're the masters of, of design, or like they are like the heroes of design, like they're the form, heroic form givers. So maybe there's um, some positive side engaged with architects, but with developers, um, yeah, they're just straight evil. <laughs> so those are the things that, you know, is challenging. Well, for, for I guess any developers that are gonna listen to this, that's not our opinion. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> well, it's, it's we we're, we're doing it to make money. I mean, th there's nothing to hide about that. I mean, I, every profession does it to bring bread to your table and right. to make a living. Like mm -hmm. we can't, we can't hide from that. So we just need to be more open and more communicative. Well, I think it's a good, t it's, a, it's an interesting point to end on. I'm sure we'll we'll get back to this throughout the seasons ahead. Yeah. But I think you know we've decided to do this podcast through a lot of the based on a lot of lessons we've learned in our previous you know decade or so of career. For you, what is the why do you think it's important to give voice to your own experience and to your own journey and to you know also to project ahead to mm -hmm. where you want to go? Um, I, I would I say it's um, there's two things. One is you know, I, I'm sure I'm not the only one who's interested in building a, realizing a design or, or constructing a building from start to finish. Mm -hmm. um, I hope this podcast can give, can can be used uh, can can provide useful information um, that can um, unearth that what that actually what that process actually means and how many this how diverse. Uh, disciplines are involved by engaging with different disciplines that are not often talked within academia because academia is also very focused um, so that's one thing that I would like to do the second thing is I want to personally gain more knowledge and also grow my network and you know hear from the from the disciplines that are that I don't you know interact quite often yet or or hear or or have a more kind of deep, uh, deeper knowledge in with the disciplines that I, I interact daily. So um, basically, just to provide a bigger picture, so that people who are studying architecture, or who who wants to study architecture, or or who wants to be somehow engaged in this built environment industry, um, they can. They don't have to start from like you know, start when everything's just pitch dark. Like they can have some sort of guiding you know guiding not principles but like guiding routes that we will identify by talking to these people um so that you know they can find this helpful and meaningful for the listeners own own um, careers mm -hmm. yeah so i guess now's the time for outro this has been season zero episode one our <laughs> interview with minku um i think what we're learning as this goes and i think in this interview especially there was a lot of names a lot of people a lot of companies that are referenced and we'll try to put links to those in the show notes so if you're curious about uh, any of the things that Minku have talked about um, you can find more information uh, in the show notes of the show yeah thank um, you Minku. yeah thank you I don't know if I <laughs> if I delivered um, but you know I, I'm sure there will be a lot uh, many opportunities to talk more um, about our interests and what we do individually so um, this will be a good start I sure. hope. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that was great. I feel really good about like how natural. Yeah, yeah. All of this is. So it sounds good.